Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of the Climate Briefing Podcast. My name is Anthony Froggett. I work here at Chatham House on climate and energy issues. Today's edition, we'll be looking at the geopolitics of the energy transition. And I'm delighted to be joined today by two wonderful experts from different sides of the Atlantic. Firstly, we have Susanna Karp, who is a senior European climate and energy policy specialist supporting clean tech for Europe. She comes from an NGO and parliamentary background and has significant experience looking at EU climate law, electricity market directives, and carbon border tax adjustments. And from the United States, we have Jane Nakano, who's a senior fellow in the Energy, Security, and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Her research interests include US energy policy, global markets, and policy developments, as well as concerning about natural gas, nuclear energy, and critical materials. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion. I believe that it is an absolutely fundamental issue at the moment. And I think what I hope you hear is insightful and informative. So please enjoy. What we've seen over the last 24 months is a a shift in policy around energy and climate change. So from a a British perspective, at least, we had a, a real peak of attention on climate change as we approached COP26, which was hosted by the UK in Glasgow. And then soon after that, so there we saw climate change at the fore in terms of the energy discussion, in terms of the public debate. And then we had Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of last year, which significantly switched the attention towards energy security. And having access and affordability of energy became really paramount. But then And this is the main topic of our conversation today. We had the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act, and then the European response, very much moving, again, I would argue, the discussions towards focusing on industrial policy. And so in some ways, that's what I'd like to hear from our guests today, that triumvirate of issues around climate change, around energy security and industrial policy. How are these interacting, both within each country, but then across the US and the EU? So Jane, maybe if I could ask you first, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, maybe you could just talk us through where is it, how did it come about, and and how impactful is it? Thanks so much for that question. It's my pleasure to join you, Anthony. So climate change is among the top priorities for the United States under the Biden administration. And the administration has been fast recognizing the fact that it's very robust climate goals but the U.S. energy security and also U.S. economic growth can be together advanced by not just uh, deploying clean energy technologies, but also by developing them within the United States. So for that reason, uh, there's been growing focus on having its own clean energy technology industry. That has become a really key focus. And as you said, the Inflation Reductions Act is a major enabler to really advance this objective. But before, you know, just quickly, I also wanted to mention that there's the inflation, uh, before the Inflation Reductions Act came about, the U.S. Congress on a bipartisan basis also passed another important law called uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act in November of 2021. That was already sort of beginning of the, the U.S. articulation of sort of green industrial policy, in my view. So that law appropriates about $75.8 U.S. billion for various energy-related programs, including you know, EV infrastructure, but that also had 
about $9.5 billion for clean hydrogen-related programs, including $8 billion for regional clean hydrogen hubs, and the rest for uh, hydrogen R&D, research and development, and also manufacturing. This law also had uh, quite a bit of uh, money dedicated to uh, establishing battery material processing program and also battery manufacturing recycling programs. And then, so that was already the beginning. And then came this Inflation Reductions Act that passed Congress in August 2023. Unfortunately, it was not passed on a bipartisan basis. It was very much driven by the Democratic Party. That's also President Biden's party. But that one then unveiled massive $370 billion for clean energy and climate-related funding and incentives. That included clean electricity-related tax credits, clean vehicles, Uh, Also, clean energy technology component manufacturing capacity and plants within the United States. I think one of the more famous ones uh, under this, uh, these incentives is the one that concerns electric vehicles. This one, uh, the EV tax credits are now available. About half of this EV tax credits of uh, up to $7,500 is available if EV battery components are manufactured or assembled in North America, namely the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And the other half of that tax credit value is available if the battery minerals are extracted or processed in the United States or the countries that the United States has free trade agreements with. Uh, So these are some of the key components of the U.S. green industrial policy. That's fascinating. And this, I mean, for me, at least the scale of it in terms of the, the hundreds of billions that you're talking about, but also the specifics about not only encouraging the, the manufacturing, but also the sourcing the materials. And I think that's, uh, and maybe if, if we can come on to Susanna here, because that's very much what we've seen within the EU, but maybe not with the same levels of, of total subsidy available. Suzanne, maybe you could talk through how, how the EU has responded to this development. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Jane. Um, Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. Indeed, the European Union is having a great uh, moment of, let's say, uh, a reckoning uh, with its uh, pathway to to where it is now, but also uh, very seriously considering its uh, options for future versions of of how it can develop. And uh, that is partly having to do with this awakening that other jurisdictions, such as the United States, are committed to deploying a lot of financial support in developing the clean technologies required to to meeting the net zero commitments under the Paris Agreement. However, I should mention that the context for for Europe is a bit wider. And indeed, Anthony, as you referenced at the beginning, uh, already the the start of the war of aggression against Ukraine by the Russian Federation uh, last year has sharpened the already existing concerns around energy security and and the whole notion of tech sovereignty and and kind of an autonomous European Union were already sort of coming to the top of the agenda as 2022 was unfolding uh, and already before the Inflation Reduction Act. It is also worth mentioning that actually since its inception, um, uh, the European Union was an industrial project. It was first set up as a coal and steel community, although it didn't necessarily 
you know, promote industrial strategy the way that we're discussing it now, it certainly already had a vision for Europe in the world that stands on these two legs. So one being integration of energy resources and integration of industrial capacities. And so in that sense, you could say we've been preparing for this moment for the past 70 years. At the same time, being in Brussels, I can very much confirm that still the level of ambition um, that the Inflation Reduction Act proposed has taken uh, the EU to some extent by surprise. Having said that, uh, the package which was announced recently, the Green Deal Industrial Plan and its uh, Net Zero Industry Act, actually come in a way to complement the already existing EU Green Deal. So I wouldn't say they're a direct response to what is happening in the United States, but nonetheless, they're taking into account what is happening in the United States. And so part of the measures that are being proposed are actually finding a way to to create a European or several European pillars of clean technology development and manufacturing in the EU precisely to entice innovators and clean tech uh, manufacturers in Europe to actually stay and develop and scale up their solutions here and not to get distracted uh, in a way and and focus really all of their efforts uh, in the European Union. So just very briefly, that's being done through uh, a list, a strategic list of net zero sectors. So those sectors will actually have access to fast track permitting and to uh, a significant amount of financial resources. Although it's not precisely easy to compare the U.S. financial approach to the EU uh, one, there have been many attempts uh, in this direction. And of course, Clean Tech for Europe has actually published the very first one uh, comparing uh, IRA with what's already existing um, in the EU. But the amounts we're looking at when we take into account the EU ETS revenues as well at the current prices are quite comparable because the EU ETS alone generates around 50 billion euros annually. <laughs> so presuming that, you know, those funds would be reinvested in the sectors that have been considered strategic, you actually have a situation where the two, uh, the US and the EU would be investing on an equal level, but just in extremely different ways. I love some of the language you used. So the 70 years in the making in terms of this industrial strategy for the EU, I, I think is a great framing. But also the, the language, and I'd like to point this towards Jane, is you said hoping that countries don't get distracted, European companies don't get distracted by what's happening in the US in terms of a new build. And maybe, Jane, you could respond to that. How have we seen or what have you seen in terms of the impact of the legislation? Are you starting to see shovels, etc.? Are, are we seeing action on the ground? Yes. I mean, the Inflation Reductions Act has been really getting a lot of companies excited both those in the United States, but then also non-US-based companies uh, from around the world. You know, in solar panel plants, uh, that area, I, I know that uh, Enel um, is one of the European stakeholders that are looking at capacity in the United States, uh, manufacturing capacity in the United States. Also, when it comes to the EV um, sector, this clean uh, vehicle uh, tax provisions are extremely attractive and appealing to quite a few companies uh, that do have EV models. And so we've seen uh, companies like BMW, Ford, Toyota, Honda, Hyundai uh, from the auto manufacturer side, but then also battery, EV battery manufacturing companies. Uh, many of them are, I think, based in Asia, but they are looking to invest and I think at the end of the, the last year, 2022, 
the White House mentioned that there have been about $53 billion that are already committed or are going into the battery manufacturing factory in the United States. And also about you know, over $13 billion for other clean energy sectors. And also several other research entities have uh, really you know, been tracking the investment trends. I think the numbers are about the same, but roughly $50 billion have been invested in US EV and battery sector since the passage of IRA. And also close to you know, 46,000 jobs have been created since then. So this is really a happening uh, sector, and and you know the U.S. stakeholders uh, want you know IRA tax credits and also all these subsidies and investments to be better utilized by not just the U.S. companies, but also from companies that are from our you know friends and allied countries. And maybe just a quick follow up before telling about Susanna. I mean, are you seeing this evenly across the U.S.? I mean, is it politicized in terms of you see more going into Republican states or more into Democratic or Within the UK, you have this big thing about levelling up. The central government wants to make sure that all of the regions receive subsidies equally. Is, is that the same in the US or is it part, more partisan than that? Yeah. In the United States, many of these actually clean energy manufacturing jobs are going into states uh, where the Republican Party has been quite active and, and quite you know, dominant. So uh, states such as Georgia and also Ohio. So, you know, one of the really interesting things for policy think tanks, uh, you know, folks like myself to really watch in the next couple of years is to what extent the benefits, the local job and economic benefits out of the uh, Inflation Reductions Act may affect sort of, I guess, the local level politics, if you will. Because, again, you know, IRA was not uh, passed on the bipartisan basis. Uh, Vice President Harris as a member, you know, had to uh, cast a deciding vote. But at the same time, I think the benefits of the IRA is available for both the parties with influence from, you know, uh, or influence or leadership from either of the parties. Susanna, maybe I could turn to you in terms of, are we starting to see the impact in terms of industrial de- developments? Are, are they slowing down some of the statements from the European business that they want to move to the United States? Are they bedding down back in Europe. And, uh, and maybe just also talk a bit about the politics. Where does the politics of this lie? Are we between the different member states? A quick uh, reflection on, on what's happening on the ground, because Jane, of course, referred to the solar sector. And um, we actually completed uh, our quarter, our first quarter of 2023 analysis. And something really interesting has happened in Europe as well, which is that actually, uh, so, so we've had really uh, deal volume and amounts invested that increased, both for early as, uh, as well as late stage uh, venture capital uh, deals in, in, in the European Union, but particularly in the solar sector. Uh, so this is quite an interesting uh, aspect. Three of the top 10 largest deals in Europe involved solar companies. And so to some extent, this is kind of a change in how in, in from the previous years where after trailing behind uh, North America this time uh, this year. Uh, so we see investments into solar in the EU was multiple times larger than in, in North America. So so th- there are several dynamics of play 
and several speeds of, of action. And so I think it's true that companies in Europe are considering also investing in the United States. But at the same time, uh, the European Union remains a very attractive investment location. And, and part of that is the robustness of its climate policies. So indeed, while the Inflation Reduction Act gives a guarantee over 10 years, the European Union has also been, uh, let's say, in you know, since the Paris Agreement, quite diligently striving towards creating extremely robust uh, legislative frameworks and creating really quite a complex landscape of policies that advance emission reductions for 2030, but also beyond. But all of these are actually amounting up to an extremely clear signal to investors that the European Union will actually stay resilient and maintain its its course uh, over the next couple of decades. And so in that sense, we see that it remains uh, quite an attractive place to, to develop technologies, clean technologies. But indeed, there is then the question of how to actually make the European Union or yeah, the Green Deal Industrial Plan speak as simple of a language as the Inflation Reduction Act does. And how can the European Union move from being such a complex political construction to actually speaking a language that is closer to the language of innovators and investors? And so now getting to the politics of it, it is uh, quite interesting because uh, we've had proposals coming out from the European Commission and we're seeing them following their sort of natural course, which is that now they're in the European Parliament. There will be votes on these proposals coming up over the summer. And in the autumn, at some point, the discussion will move to the European Council. So that is the place where the different member, member states will get to share and negotiate a common perspective. So there's many things on the table right now. For example, the creation of a European sovereignty fund, which would exactly support technology developments in key strategic uh, uh, sectors. But again, that would have to be agreed by all member states. There's also various ways of simplifying the regulatory framework that are currently being discussed. For example, the relaxation of, of state aid rules so that member states can step in and actually engage with their innovators directly in such a way that, uh, let's say, should they actually have a more compelling business case in another jurisdiction, a certain European member state could actually compensate for that business case. So that is also being discussed at this point in time. I have to be clear that just the same way the example of NL was brought up, it's true that those innovators in Europe that are looking to expand in the United States are not looking to leave Europe. They just find it interesting and attractive to also tap into the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act with the understanding that effectively we are trying to mitigate climate change for the whole globe. So, of course, if we lower the cost of technologies uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, that ultimately stands to benefit the world. So it's not, you know, we're actually in a, in a very interesting situation where the competition is actually a collaborative competition towards the same overarching goals. But of course, that's not to say it's still a competition. And I think both uh, the United States and, and the EU are, are throwing their, their best bets <laughs> into the game. Yeah, it's exciting because we're finally in a race to the top. And this is where we should have been ever since the Paris Agreement was signed. But of course, there were you know various politicians and, and political setups that got in the way. But I think now we're finally where we should have been. And, and so this discussion is really the good one to, to have right now. So how do we bring the two together? How do we create a joint space? How do we create a, a market for green technologies across the EU? How do we stimulate demand? Is this maybe a, a an area where both could collaborate a bit more? These are some of the possible ways forward. That's great. 
a very optimistic view in terms of the opportunities for the US and the EU to work together. But maybe moving into sort of the final stage of this discussion, touching upon China. Um, obviously, China, at least some of the narrative around the, again, coming from the UK, but I think also within the EU and the US, is the sense that China dominated some of the this industrial space too much. 80% or 90% of the world's solar panels are made in China, likewise for batteries for the EVs. So both of these strategies are, are both driven by each other in terms of wanting competition between them, but also not wanting China necessarily to over-dominate this space. So do you think that is the case? And how is that driven from a political perspective in, in each of your countries? Yeah, the, so the, in the United States, there has been this growing recognition that our supply chains have become hugely reliant on single source, i.e. China. And I think in the past, uh, when the U.S.-China relations were based on some shared interest, uh, but then also less divergent norms and values, I think the degree of interdependence was acceptable politically, but I think that has been increasingly changing. And this, you know, uh, dependence on China for supply chains for such important ingredients into the modern economy and our energy system just has become uh, politically unviable, as well as just, you know, economically, you know, being unwise. In this sense, I think China concern is an important factor that's driving U.S. Uh, green industrial strategy. However, at the same time, I really like the way that uh, Susanna uh, sort of formulated uh, some of this competition in, in that it's sort of a race to the top. I think you know, China itself is wanting to create more values in clean energy sector. The U.S. also wants to do that. And I think you know, European colleagues also want to do that in that journey, you know, one of the, the potential, you know, great benefits is to really continue to drive down the cost of these components and, and perhaps also drive the innovation, not just the manufacturing side, but also the research and innovation side. But at the same time, I think, you know, as far as the, the, this dominance on this global supply chains is so huge, they really takes multiple countries such as the United States and Europe and others, where, you know, the actors are non-state-owned enterprise-driven companies, you know, that need to compete and, you know, against state-owned enterprises from China. And in that sense, it's very important that, you know, we keep that in mind, that our efforts will not end up expanding the U.S. sort of a pie, if you will, at the expense of the efforts by friends and colleagues from Europe or from Japan, from Korea, et cetera, in that it, the global supply chains could be much more geographically diverse. And just quickly, I think in that sense, I was very happy to see clear mention of the importance of more of a, um, resilient supply chains when the G7 climate, energy and environment ministers met in Sapporo, Japan, and in the communique that came out of that uh, ministerial meeting, they introduced this five-point plan for critical mineral security. And there are, you know, obviously five different, uh, you know, points to it. But you know, largely, you know, there is a greater recognition, and also sort of looking to international, uh, you know, uh, organizations such as the International Energy Agency to uh, really sort of enhance 
uh, some of the, you know, the capacity, you know, analyzing, you know, looking at the long-term outlooks for these minerals so that the policymakers can make more informed decisions. Also, the United States, together with EU and a couple other countries, I think they're namely 10 plus EU as original members of the uh, multilateral uh, effort called the Mineral Security Partnership that was launched last summer. Basically, that's really looking to you know, engage resource-rich countries and make sure that you know, our efforts to expand the, the mineral supplies and also you know, supply chains for things like EV also benefit these resource-rich developing countries. And it's, it's in many ways reflection of the, the Washington's recognition that domestic sourcing alone will not really meet our needs for the future. For that reason, I think there's much more really good partnership uh, among key countries that do have resources, but then also commitments to things like you know, environmental sustainability of these efforts, uh, also engaging developing countries with resources in the manner that uh, it will be win-win. Uh, so I think, you know, it's about China, but then it's also about, you know, just the global wider community's benefit. That sounds right. Susanna, is that the similar view from the US in some ways? It's, it's a push and a pull, isn't it? In terms of the push from wanting to reduce dependency on certain countries, while the pull in terms of wanting to develop domestic resources and new relationships with, with new producers. Indeed, this is at the core of the of the concerns of the European Union. But don't forget that, as we mentioned uh, earlier on, the war we have ongoing on our continent at this point in time is also making us reflect very uh, deeply on, on who we want to associate uh, ourselves with in the future and what sort of dependencies we create as we move towards the net zero world, simply because there seem to be various sort of values underpinning the different approaches of different countries. And it's become quite clear for the European Union and for Europeans that the values that we hold so dearly that we have built the European uh, Union on are that much more important going forward. So therefore, the idea of shortening supply chains or uh, also that of choosing very carefully our, let's say, partners with whom we develop uh, trading relationships, but also just in, in these key strategic sectors, who can we rely upon? It's now, you know, more than ever seen also through the lenses of the values that we would share with, with our partners. However, I should say that the whole topic of industrial policy, although it has been in the making since the inception of the European Union, we haven't had these thoughts in these ways, in Brussels at least, Ever, really. So the idea of talking about binding manufacturing targets or, or selecting strategic sectors is actually a step further. It's a development um, that goes into a new vision about what tech neutrality means for us. And tech neutrality is something that is enshrined in the European Union treaties. But equally so, uh, aspects around climate policy and environmental policy also come from the EU treaties. So we are now in a situation where we're finally you know, kind of breaking out of this uh, straight jackets that we have been in, in in Europe for for quite some time, and we're finally talking about the fact that we need clear and binding targets for these technologies that we're trying to develop, partly to also create demand and and create guarantees for for innovators, but also because technology neutrality 
in the net zero world no longer means what technology neutrality meant before. So it doesn't mean it's it's still uh, a market that's open for all technologies, but rather uh, a market that is very committed to rapidly transform towards a market that supports net zero technologies primarily, uh, especially, and uh, very soon only net zero technologies. So, so that's a little bit what's what's going on here. And there were a little some some debates going on around 2021. I recall distinctively when it was clear that China had committed to producing carbon free steel in 2024 at a certain level, and both the EU and the UK at the time were sort of reckoning with that statement and sort of what to make of it. But now I think what we're making from China's industrial policy is that there's elements of a clear and targeted approach that uh, we should be considering developing and employing in Europe. And that's to a large extent what the Green Deal industrial plan is doing, but also really going strong in the direction of, of reshaping our trade relationships and, and these sort of critical supply chains for, for the strategic sectors. What an excellent point to finish on. I mean, I, I do think it's exciting what we're seeing, as you pointed out, in some ways, we finally reached this point where there's a recognition of the, the extent of which decarbonisation and net zero is going to totally transform the industrial sector. So different approaches, I think, from EU in terms of setting specific targets. In the US, I, I think it's more creating subsidies to encourage uh, industry. But hopefully they will both have the same objective in terms of stimulating the pace of change that we need. So, Jane, Susanna, thank you both uh, very much indeed. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure that this is, well, I know that it's one that we'll, we will continue to have, and I hope that we can have you back on the podcast uh, sometime in the future. So thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. That was it for this time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Uh, in the meantime, please feel free to go back and listen to previous episodes, which can be found on uh, the Chatham House website, Spotify, Libsyn, and all other major podcast outlets. Thanks so much for listening.